Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living today. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today is the second program in our two-part series with Acharya Shunya on learning about goddess qualities within and how people can step in to their innate divinity and lead powerful, abundant, and wise lives. Acharya Shunya, my guest today, is an award-winning and internationally renowned spiritual teacher and scholar of Advaita or non-dual wisdom. She is a classically trained master of yoga and Ayurveda. She offers many courses and retreats and is the author of numerous books. Her new book that we will be discussing today is Roar Like a Goddess, Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful. Thank you. Her websites are acharyashunya.com, and that is Acharya is A-C-H-R-Y-A, Acharya, Shunya, S-H-U-N-Y-A dot com. Her other website is awakenedself.com. And you can follow her on social media on both Facebook and Instagram at Acharya Shunya. We will put these links on our website at theyogahour.com. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, Acharya Shunya. I'm just delighted to be able to continue our conversation uh, today. Thank you so much, Laurel, for your big shout out for Roar Like a Goddess and for having me back. I look forward to our conversation. Before we dive in to our dialogue about how to connect to our inner divine goddess, let's begin with a moment of contemplation. Let's begin with a yoga moment. Let's begin today right where we are, whatever we're doing, whatever may be around us, whether we're sitting or standing, walking. And let's just pay attention to the body, just feel our body in space. And in particular, feel any surfaces that are supporting our weight. And then turning our attention to the breath, which is a wonderful tool that's always with us, just notice as you take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feel how cool the air is in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feel how it has been warmed as it passes through our lungs. And just keeping our focus on the breathing, resting right here in this moment. Here's something to contemplate, a teaching from Yogacharya O'Brien, spiritual director and founder of this program, The Yoga Hour. And this is from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. We have hundreds of choices every day about what we will put our attention on, what thoughts we will cultivate and believe, 
and what we will allow to influence us. Spiritually conscious living involves turning, turning away from appearances to rely on what is true, turning away from limiting beliefs and turning toward freedom, turning away from fear and returning to wholeness. It takes boldness to turn and embrace our divine identity, but when we do, we discover a beautiful life overflowing with divine love and grace. Truth is the direct path. No preparation is needed. Truth is the direct path. No preparation is needed. Once again, Acharya Shunya, welcome back to the Yoga Hour for part two of our conversation about your book, Roar Like a Goddess, Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful. I'm really happy to continue this conversation because I feel like we barely scratched the surface of your book and about the goddesses and our, our inherent um, ability to contact them as they are within each of us. For those who have not yet had a chance to listen to part one, it can be accessed on our website, theyogahour.com, as well as most podcast platforms. I wanted to, to just take a moment at the beginning, Acharya Shunya, and to say that, that this book and this conversation come at an interesting and complex time in our world for so many reasons. Everyone's aware that we are continuing in a pandemic right now, and this is August, uh, September of uh, 2022, that this is a continuing problem we've had for almost two years now, so many changes that have been uh, come with that, so many disruptions. There are obviously also ecological concerns, concerns about racial and gender equality, and other many other changes and conflicts, too, too numerous to mention. So how do you think this information about the goddesses can be helpful to us and is necessary to us at this time? When we're faced with impermanence, afflictions, transience, disease, and fear of death, which is very real, we want to hold on to something that is intact, permanent, abiding, and hope and joy giving within us. And that is the dimension of the goddess because it is one with a higher self, a higher potential. It does not mean that connecting to the goddess, to that roar or that authenticity within is going to, you know, magically change the world outside us. But it will give us and impart within us greater emotional resilience, greater fortitude, mm -hmm. greater courage, and greater curiosity also to bear witness to this historical time on the planet when humanity has to face its own uh, potential end or disturbance or difficulty. And what are we going to do with this time individually and collectively? So instead of it just scaring the daylights out of us, we can become curious 
spiritually curious Mm -hmm. to say, how am I going to respond to this? Wow, this is interesting. And can I breathe through this? Mm -hmm. As Yogacharya said in the quote that you said, like truth, you know, it's, it's direct, it's easy. And if this is the truth, then can we just be with it? And the goddess teachings that I bring forth in my book allow us to connect to the greater paradigm beyond the chit-chat and the panic and the fears of the mind. And I hope that helps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Acharya Ji, as I said in the introduction, you are the first female head of your teaching lineage. How has this affected your study and your awareness of the goddesses? When I was born in the India of 1960s, it was pretty steeped in patriarchy. And even now, patriarchy, which is a worldwide phenomena, has a hold in the Indian society. But I was born to a remarkably progressive family because we believe in the Vedas, which are by themselves inclusive and progressive to begin with. We promote the Vedic tradition. And so by the time I was chosen by my grandfather, a well-known seer and scholar of non-dual teachings of coming out of India, as the next head, um, there was greater receptivity to my taking over. But at the same time, there were not many role models around me doing this. And if I did look at some female teachers leading the Vedic Indian tradition, they were monks, they were celibates. Mm -hmm. They they were not really wives and mothers. Whereas I come from a householder yogi tradition where we also take on partners and lovers and husbands and wives and pay taxes while we connect with a greater consciousness within us. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of reinvent myself And when people doubted me outside me, and they still do, I still get an occasional email where I'm told, if you're a woman, how come you're teaching the Vedas, which is such a falsehood propagated at some point in India, where it was said that Vedas are only for men Mm -hmm. to teach and to learn, which is a complete falsehood, because 27 female seers known as Rishikas Right. contributed to the Vedas as much as the male seers known as rishis. Yes. So if women can compose the Vedas, they can surely teach it and learn it. Right. But, you know, there was questioning along the way. There was derision along the way. There was doubt along the way, especially if the lineage has been male all along. And there are very few role models of Maybe they are female teachers as part of a lineage, but not necessarily leading it. Right. To roar like a goddess in my vocabulary means to roar with power, with self-referred authority and internal validation and authenticity. And I had to use all those tools to really come into my own. And to not just deal with challenges outside me, but the inner challenge, the inner doubts, and the inner subconscious internalized beliefs that women inhale from the air, so to say, were not good enough. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. now I feel 
in my mid fifties that maybe I wrote Roar Like a Goddess because I did feel like my voice was challenged, suppressed or not taken as seriously as it could have been taken mm -hmm. if I was not a female to begin with. Mm -hmm. And that's why I decided to announce to myself and to the world that I'm here and I'm roaring. Right. I know that we we covered this, but I wanted to give just a brief review first about about how each of the three goddesses that you write about in your book is really a facet or a manifestation of this Shakti of the the supreme goddess Shakti. So would you say just a little bit about Shakti and how these other goddesses are just facets, just views of of her? and not separate unto themselves. It is misunderstood often that Indian Hindu tradition is populated with numerous gods and goddesses, that it's a polytheistic tradition and gods and goddesses are not just human, but they're also animals and birds and plants and trees. And it feels very confusing and almost childish at one level. But what needs to be explained here is that there was this concept of radi radical oneness in terms of divinity. Yeah. And that oneness dwells in all, all sentient beings and even the non-sentient world, the mountains, the rivers, the rocks, they all represent that radical one truth of consciousness. And so it was a deeply inclusive tradition. And if all humans have God dwelling, God, God is dwelling within them as self, then who to include and who to exclude? Mm -hmm. And as a result, we have many, many gods and goddesses. We have a choice of how we wish to approach that same truth known by different forms and names. In fact, the Vedas say in Sanskrit, ekam sat bahuda vipraha, bahuda vipraha. Vadanti. There is only ekam, one truth, one truth, though different, um, different people call it and know it by different names and forms. Shakti is that ultimate divine feminine power, that entity, that presence, which cannot be reduced to one body, one archetype, one story alone as a result. And she has many, many, many manifestations. When she becomes courageous and roars with power, she is Durga. When she laughs with pleasure and gives us prosperity and abundance, she is Lakshmi. And when she enables intuition, wisdom, learning, and a higher ability to meditate and evolve within us, she becomes herself Saraswati. Lovely. So let's begin with Durga again. We did speak about this in, in part one. Would you briefly review who is Durga and why is she important? Durga is the fierce, courageous manifestation of Shakti. And we need fierceness and we need courage and we need fearlessness, which she embodies in total because we need those kind of skills within us too when we face the challenges outside us or inside us 
such as negativity or entrenched false beliefs and self-diminishing patterns, addictions, and habits. Durga in her mythology is shown to battle with dark darkness and dark darkness embodying beings. And she is shown to rise within us as higher consciousness, as higher light, as higher power that helps us break free from our own internal emotional bondages, enslavements, and uh, addictions. I repeat that word again. We need Durga like Shakti, like goddess power to be who we are meant to be, happy, successful, fulfilled, and 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 validating ourselves from within ourselves, being complete unto ourselves. And all this Durga enables. Yeah. She's powerful because sometimes that's what it takes. Super powerful, super convinced, and super fierce as she goes about her business. <laughs> One of the examples that you offered was that Rosa Parks' inner Durga awoke on the day that Rosa Parks got on that bus. Would you say more about that? Well, we all know that Rosa Parks is uh, not only a historical figure for American history, but she for world history, but she is a role model for sometimes just following your intuition and saying no. Her no, her refusal to get up and move around the bus to give the white folks a seat was not premeditated, but there was some inner knowingness that this woman had back then that she followed through with. Mm -hmm. She didn't suppress it, suffocate it. She just said a plain no. No. And and when you questioned her later, it's not like she gave this elaborate theory on feminism or divine feminine either. She just said, I didn't feel like it. Mm -hmm. So it also shows that she respected her feeling. And how many of us throttle that feeling or think that it's not important anymore? I, despite growing up in a progressive family, because I inhale patriarchy from the larger society, and it's evident whether you live in a traditional society or a modern society, it's there. I too, as a spiritual teacher, can tell you openly that in my 20s and 30s, I would often uh, not even take my feelings seriously. I agree we can't act on our first set of feelings or our first set of thoughts, but there is some knowingness that we each have. Rosa owned it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because she owned it and because she acted upon it, <clears throat> she changed the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm beginning to ask all of us to then roar with that authenticity. And that's why I describe that owning of that knowledge within to a roar, because a roar has, you can second guess a roar. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. You give lots of examples in the book about uh, some questions to write about and some ideas about affirmations. Can you give us an idea of how we can incorporate or get in touch with these uh, qualities of Durga in our lives? 
So there is a demon called Mahisha Asura, Mahisha Asura, um, that Durga battles with, annihilates, and Mahisha Asura keeps changing his form because just like our ego in wears masks or deceives ourselves by pretending to be holy or pious or good or kind, but in reality, it's still the ego, right? And Durga, which represents a higher consciousness, higher awareness, sees through the ego and says, done, enough. Mm. And so she's known as the destroyer of that, the false ego, the deluded ego. And, um, and she then gives us gifts when we are able to transcend that ego, which is entrenched in its falsehoods, in its commitment to suffering, for self and for others, and it's deluded and lost in the story. So I would like to just chant this about Durga. Okay. Om Mahisha Sura Nirnashi Bhakta Nam Sukade Namaha Rupam Dehi Jayam Dehi Disho jahi namo namaha. So may Durga rise within you and may she destroy Mahishasura, your own, the own, the own delusions and darkness and ignorance of the ego, because ego is really a cluster of thoughts and beliefs. And so may Durga like power, like goddess energy, like goddess clarity rise within you and may she bring an end to that tussle to that pain and suffering causing ahamkara or uh, ego within you the, the deluded ego and as a result may she give you sukha or happiness relief may she give you rupa may she let you see rupa means your form but may she see you in your true form as your own goddess within. May she see you, may you be able to see your own inner radiance. May she give you jayam, which means may she give you uh, victory, victory mm -hmm. in personal lives and relationships and professional life, because now you're not held back by the ego. Now you're not held back by this, like, you know, this inner voice that shames you or blames you or puts you in a corner. Now you are free. And then in another version of the same mantra, it says, Rupam Dehi, Jayam Dehi, Yasho Dehi, Dusho Jahi. So there is also Yasha, or may the good fame be with you. People look at you and say, what happened to you? And you can smile and know my inner Durga awakened. Dusho Jahi means, may you also be free of challenges and challengers, not only inner challenges, but your outer challenges will also dissolve because people will know you're not alone working in this life, kind of hustling your way through it. You now have your goddess awake and roaring within you. Mm. You could stand up to protect yourself and you can deal with challengers outside you, claiming who you are and your right to be who you are every single time. Mm. I bless you. I bless you that through these conversations that you are listening to right here, you can 
slowly come into a greater alignment with her. And it is said, simply remembering her or saying her name, Durga, that itself is a mantra. It opens a private door inside you mm. and reveals your own divine feminine goddess self from inside you. Acharya Shunya, so self-respect is a very important topic for women because often we are taught to put others' needs before our own needs. We may end up feeling that we aren't worthy of respect. So there's a, an entire chapter about self-respect in your book, and you say that many women <clears throat> think respect can be gained only through proving they are worthy of respect by holding high-paying jobs, making sacrifices in, in um, domesticity, having a thin, thin body, or a happening social life. Would you say more about the importance of accepting ourselves <clears throat> and getting back to this word in the title, being unapologetic? When we start sourcing our sense of self and self-sufficiency from the other two relationships, there are total three relationships, one with the self, one with other people, and the other with objects in our life, house, jewelry, boat, car, clothes. Those are relationships too. And some people spend all their life working on those other two relationships, but not on themselves. And definitely not deep enough or long enough or instructed enough to connect with the inner goddess-like self. There is a, there is a lack of self-anchoring. And when we don't anchor in the self, we're not able to find those goodies which live in the self. Mm -hmm. And the goodies that come with the self, only the self, one of them is self-worth, self-value, self-love, self-esteem, and ultimately self-respect. And you see a tiny two-year-old who's not been conditioned yet by the other two kinds of relationships quite in love with themselves and you ask a two-year-old who's the most beautiful person in the world and they'll say me <laughs> who's the most important person is me and there's kind of an innocence in this kind of narcissism i'm using that word narcissism carefully but it's a self-reference it's an unalloyed self-love self-celebration self-honor but we lose it quickly to the point to the point of only referencing our respect, honor, esteem from what we own or who we call our own. But we forget who we are deep inside. And so a big uh, part of us takes a big hit and what we lose first and foremost is self-respect. Mm. And we often start hustling for those other two relationships to the point where we even put up with disrespect and women and um, people of non-binary gender or expansive genders are known to put up with these kind of toxic relationships because we especially have become victims of disrespect. So disrespect is radical. And I saw that goddess mythology from India, um, they stand for it and they refuse for it to be stained. And they honor themselves deeply. And so I find Durga, Lakshmi, and Saraswati 
in each of their stories, uh, having to stand up for their own self-respect. Mm -hmm. So it is uh, perhaps necessary that each one of us develops a greater intimacy with the self. And through that intimacy, some of the first feelings that we will have is that I deserve more self-respect. A blade of grass has self-respect. A sparrow has self-respect. Why is mine a changeable, questionable commodity? Mm -hmm. Why is mine something that is negotiable even? And for a long time, for me too, because nobody had these exact conversations with me that I'm having right now through my book and through my teachings. For me too, like sometimes the respect would be there, but not there, or kind of there, but probably not there. And for now, for me, I don't know since when, but for some time now, it's non-negotiable. Hmm. It's like the first thing that I ask. Right. Otherwise, I'm not part of that engagement anymore. And this may sound scary to some of our listeners, especially who are living with chronic disrespect and don't want to change their situation or they're attached to those very relationships that disrespect them chronically. And, uh, or they have these belief systems that, but I love this person or I care for that person or I have a duty towards that person. That's all good. That's all good too. But if you love care for yourself too and have duty towards yourself too, then you're going to at least allow to know, allow yourself to face the fact that a very important ingredient with which you can honor your inner goddess which is self-respect is missing. And at least that contemplation is going to allow you to ask for it, stand up for it, leave a relationship or enter a new relationship for it. Let that be your most important criteria more than what car you drive, on whose arm you walk into in parties. What's really important is, do you have self-respect or not? because that defines what's happening with your inner divinity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So important. As a reminder, I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of The Yoga Hour. Today, I'm here with Acharya Shunya for the second part in our two-part series discussing her newly published book, Roar Like a Goddess, Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful. <clears throat> we will post links to her two websites, acharyashunya.com and awakenedself.com on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. Acharya Ji, you in the book talk about three goddesses. So far, we've talked about Durga. Let's move on to the goddess Lakshmi. Um, and as I mentioned, the artwork for these goddesses is truly, truly beautiful. And we can really see all the symbolism that is associated with the goddesses. So what does the goddess Lakshmi represent? She represents 
anything beautiful, anything satisfying that you and I and all of us may have encountered on this earth through our five senses, whether it's mother nature, flowers, butterflies, food, uh, sun rays, morning sunshine on our skin. She represents all of those beautiful things. She also represents um, jewels and rubies and, you know, wealth in a real, like a kind of practical sense. So this goddess really represents that once we have become safe and strong through her manifestation as Durga, then because these are all one goddess really, Durga herself becomes Lakshmi mm. and starts serenading us with joys and little pleasures. That includes the, you know, the joy of being with family or friends or socializing or being in a spiritual community and having satsang or even finding a teacher or reading a good book or listening to a podcast that just kind of talks to us. All of this pleasure, because there is some pleasure even in spiritual pursuit, that pleasure aspect, that sattvic good, pure pleasure comes from her. She also represents the purusharthas or the four goals of life that Yogacharya Ellen O'Brien likes to talk about. She represents artha, wealth and abundance, karma, pleasure and recreation. Uh, she represents dharma, which is a higher consciousness. And finally, she represents moksha, knowing that ultimate truth within you and outside you mm -hmm. as, you know, the ultimate divinity. So she represents a fulfilled life, which is pleasure, mm -hmm. which is goal-oriented, which is established on dharma but it does not exclude artha kama and it aspires for moksha. We really need the goddess as Lakshmi. Now that we have um, worked with her as Durga to install our boundaries, mean our yes, mean our no's, uh, to protect ourselves and protect our loved ones and our planet, to be strong in our convictions as Durga, now we come into Lakshmi's playground and um, when Lakshmi is shining upon you, you know, things feel good. You feel like happy to wake up, so to say. And uh, in the Rigveda, which is the oldest Vedic scripture, there is a whole hymn to Lakshmi where she's called the golden-hued goddess. She has many colors. She could be dark-skinned fair-skinned, red, coppery-skinned, but her hue is golden wow. because she represents light incarnate, really. There is also a hymn to Earth, Prithvi Suktam, which again is a hymn to her because she's also Mother Earth for us. So there's so many facets to this goddess. And as you can see from my smile, in case some of our listeners are catching us and seeing the video too, she just brings out a delight in you. And when she's around, when you're connected with her, you kind of walk around with a cheerful disposition, which is like your original nature then. You feel positive more than a melancholic. You feel hopeful and you kind of become lucky. And Lakshmi literally comes from the root word Laksha means goal. You reach your goals, material mm -hmm. and spiritual, because of her grace and because of connecting with some of the her wisdom teachings that I share in my book, Roar Like a Goddess. Mm. 
I, I appreciated when you talked about prosperity and Lakshmi as the goddess of prosperity that you were not referring necessarily to prosperity as money, although obviously it can also be that. But how can you define the divine quality of true prosperity? True prosperity has been defined in 16 ways. And while I don't remember them in that exact order, they're in my book. But prosperity includes abundance in social sphere, relationships that work for you, not just personal, but a circle of friends, community, like your village to support you. It can include spiritual prosperity and spiritual prosperity is marked by you no longer just looking for a teacher, but settling down with one, finding books that give you support books or scriptures from the ancient times, like the Yoga Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, it can be material prosperity in terms of having no lack. Mm -hmm. um, you could be, um, you know, it depends on where you were born and what you're doing, but at least you don't lack. You, you If someone comes to your house, you can feed yourself and you can feed another and have extra leftover to share, like, there is just an extra, you know, you're easy. Life is comfortable. You may live in a palace or in an apartment. It doesn't matter because you could be pretty unprosperous living in a palace. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> but you can feel prosperous living in a hut because Lakshmi is awake within you. And that's important. So there is material, social, spiritual prosperity. And then there is the kind of prosperity that comes from alignment with health. So when you become prosperous, you're in health, your body age appropriately ages, but it doesn't give you drama mm. and diseases improve with Lakshmi's blessings. And uh, then uh, there is prosperity through wisdom that flows through you. Like there's a prosperous amount of inner guidance and writing, speaking, this work that you and I are doing uh, in terms of sharing with an abundance of ideas and thoughts, while it's also considered goddess Saraswati's domain. But that ease and pleasure and, and, and fullness with which, Laura, your community is growing or my students are growing, this, this shakti that we have of this, this flow of the energy rather than stuckedness, this all comes again from Lakshmi. When I get thank you cards and flowers from my students, I go Lakshmi. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So yeah, so prosperity is definitely not just the dollars in your bank. Mm -hmm. um, and it could be like one or more ways on those 16 ways that Lakshmi could shine upon you. Upon you, yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to take time to discuss the third goddess that you highlight in your book, the goddess Saraswati. So what does the Saraswati archetype represent? She's often seen sitting on a white lotus wearing white flowing clothes and kind of lost in her own music playing this instrument called a veena or the lute. And being lost in her own music, kind of separated out from everything, it kind of represents like allowing the worldly noises, noises to die down so that you can play and listen to the music that you compose. And these are deep words. 
This really is an invitation to go within. Now that we have safety and strength from Durga, pleasure and prosperity from Lakshmi, a time comes in each one of our lives when we are ready for something more. And we intuitively know that this search is not going to be outside us. We may find a teacher outside us. We may go to an institution like CSE outside us, but these teachers and these institutions are going to invariably point to something inside you. Yeah. You're gonna ask, you're gonna be asked to close your eyes and listen. Mm. And that's when Saraswati speaks to you. Mm. And then she gives you some deeper truths that, for example, you may be in the middle of painful circumstances, but when Saraswati becomes alive, she tells you that this pain is not happening to you, but for you. Mm. And there is something you're going to milk through this darkness and you're going to come across something beautiful and you're going to grow from it and, and, and grow into your goddess greatness, really. Mm. So Saraswati is considered to be the goddess who leads us to our final journey to moksha, nirvana, mukti. She's a yogini teacher, goddess. Mm. She is um, introverted, but not, but she's very extroverted as a Lakshmi. So that's okay. It's the same goddess. It's just, yeah. she's representing to us this permission and this invitation to embody inner stillness and really hone into the wisdom received from the teacher and the intuition received from the higher self and then bring them together. Yeah. And the outer knowledge that comes from the teacher is known as Gnana or Gnanam and the inner teaching is known as Vignanam. And we bring them together to flower into a lotus. Shiva is white to represent that eternal, blemishless, stainless quality of the self. And no matter where you've been and, um, you know, what you've done or what others have done to you or what traumas you're carrying, when Saraswati starts playing that inner music, when yourself starts talking to you, every wound shall be healed, everything shall wash away, and you shall become new again. Mm. New again, I love it. <clears throat> When we see the visual representation of Saraswati, she usually has four arms, and you mentioned one of them was holding a musical instrument. How about the other three? What what are the what's the significance of what she holds in her other three hands? There are many things that she holds, but some of the prominent ones is a mala, which represents like a rosary, which represents mindfulness. She's often holding on to a kamandalu or a pitcher of water. Yeah. And that water is like quenching the existential thirst, mm. making making you pure again by a by a shower in uh, in you know in those drops of wisdom, and she's sometimes holding a scripture like the Vedas themselves because she's said to be the mother of the Vedas, and when we talk about Veda, we're not just talking about a book. Um, we're talking about the word Veda comes from the Sanskrit root. V-I-D, vid, not the English with, but the Sanskrit V-I-D, which means to know, to be aware, to become enlightened. So she's holding the Vedas, which is literally shown as an ancient scroll. Mm. But it's really like you, you're no longer just a body and mind. Now you know you are spirit. 
and you know you have divine connections with the divine feminine, divine masculine, and divine whatever that you wish to conceive of. Right. So these are, um, she's, she is a very graceful figure, and she's shown in flowing clothes because the word Saraswati itself comes from that which is eternally flowing. So it's an, and she's also called a river. There's actually a river Saraswati that uh, that is in India that has its roots in India. In fact, India is known as the ancient Saraswati River civilization because the Vedas were written on the banks of Saraswati. So she represents that uninterrupted flow of the river until it reaches the ocean. Right. So it represents our own journey, which must not stop, which must not try to hold on to anything because the river is new in every moment. And there is an incessant onward drive. I love her symbolism. Just love it. Yeah. Yeah. How can we each connect to our inner Saraswati? I think our listeners may already be connected to their inner Saraswati. That's why they're tuned in to our conversation. <laughs> I, it is said that Saraswati chooses who gets to hear about her. Mm. And um, she, her conversations happen in privileged places. Mm. And um, one, we are already connected because she's seeing to it that you're listening to this podcast or you're connected with teachers like myself, Yogacharya and other eminent guests who come on this podcast. And I'm not just saying it, it's a fact. It's a karmic privilege to hear these conversations, to be part of this this conversation that's happening right here. But I, I would say in an overall sense, and I've shared that in my book, it's like giving yourself permission to allow your inner mystic to emerge, mm. to allowing your new relationship with, you've had it with, with considered speech, which is what she represents, uh, like powerful speech and also silence, powerful silence. Mm -hmm. When I started developing a deeper relationship with Saraswati, I realized that I wanted to now be discerning about even the friends I hang out with. A movie that my partner and I may watch over a weekend, I wanted to be sure that that content is not polluting my mind. Mm. I wanted to spend more time in nature. I wanted to be more meditative. I became a little more, uh, you could say, selective. Mm. And Durga had already taught me how to be unapologetic about it. <laughs> That's lovely. <clears throat> Once again, I can't believe we've well, the time has just flown by. Um, we've come to the end of the, the conversation. Just in closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? Through the listening of the podcasts in which we talk about Durga, Lakshmi, Saraswati, the two podcasts, and potentially in case you read the book or like a goddess, you may feel a higher calling within you. Please respect it. When you respect your own inner call, intuition, and come back to it, that is the goddess's way to talk to you and to show you your next steps. As usual, don't doubt yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, don't bring your usual doubting self. 
experiment with it, you will find that something beautiful will emerge from you and bless all of us on this planet. Roar for yourself, roar for me, and roar like a goddess for all of us. Mm, so beautiful. I did want to mention again to everyone, if you haven't already signed up, there is an online book launch and women's empowerment retreat coming on Saturday, September 17th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Pacific time. Yogacharya O'Brien, uh, the Yoga Hour founder and spiritual director, will be one of the guests. So please go ahead and sign up for that at uh, through the uh, website, through Acharya Shunya's website. Um, <clears throat> you've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Acharya Shunya. The book is Roar Like a Goddess, Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful, which was just published. You can check out Acharya Shunya's website, acharyashunya.com. That's where you can sign up for the upcoming book launch. Also, awakenedself.com. We'll have the links to these websites on our website, theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Acharya, for joining me today on the show. <laughs> for listeners, I hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, which are uh, morning meditation at 6.30 a.m. Pacific, the afternoon meditation at 4 p.m. Pacific, Monday evening meditation, 7.30 p.m. Also a Sunday satsang, which is a gathering of truth seekers at 10 a.m. each week on Sunday. All those times are Pacific time. Yogacharya O'Brien will be returning from her summer sabbatical this coming Sunday, September 11th, 2022. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I will be joined by Chris Johnstone, who along with Joanna Macy wrote the book, Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In with Unexpected Resilience and Creative Power. We'll be discussing how we can navigate this time of climate change, war, political polarization, and play our role in the collective transition to a life-sustaining society. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.